0: when our learners aren't performing the way that we expect them to be able to because their spatial awareness issues are not allowing them to make the decisions that we think that they should be able to make by now we often internalize it but what if it's not necessarily us what if there are things going on underneath the surface of spatial awareness. That's exactly what we get to dive into today with our guests, Marnie Roth and Lil Deverall. Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for ambitious VI specialists who are challenging the status quo. I'm Cassie Maloney, your new work bestie. With over 15 years of experience as an o specialist, author, professional development junkie, mom, and owner of Allied Independence, I have been through the ringer. And now I'm here to bring you a boost of inspiration, information, and our favorite, innovation, as we trade feeling overwhelmed for overjoyed while we create a significant impact in the lives of our learners and still lead more balanced, fulfilling lives. So, grab your favorite beverage because we're about to take a step forward. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. I'm so glad that you are here. It is no secret that this time of year is my absolute favorite because we get to not only anticipate the amazing presentations at the symposium itself, but we also get to sit down and have real conversations with the presenters. You know, it's one thing to go to a conference and Have a presenter just give you their information. And a lot of times when you go to a conference in and of itself, it feels like you're sitting down and the person is just talking at you, which can be really boring. And especially if you're online, that can be just excruciating. And that's not what the symposium does whatsoever. The symposium is a three-day live global experience where we get to learn from not only the presenter, but also the people that are in the room. And these podcast episodes really allow us to more so become friends with the people that we're going to be learning from to find out why did you want to study this and how does this actually impact me? And to get a little bit of behind the scenes in a casual way so that way we can really understand the full context of what we're learning about and who we're learning from. Because these are our people. If you don't know Lil and you don't know Marnie, that's totally okay. By the end of today, you will. So pop in those headphones because it is gonna be a good one. Now, Marnie Roth stumbled upon OM while studying ortho... I'm gonna say this wrong. <gasps> orthoptics, why can I not say that, orthoptics? with a keen interest in low vision services. Although she's a mom to four teenage daughters, she is a big kid at heart and so loves working with young people. Marnie has spent many years working as an O&M, including working specializing in acquired brain injury, children's, one on one and group services, and early childhood services. As a comms, Marnie has supervised many OM students at Guide Dogs Victoria over the last six years and is passionate about seeing future OMs being well supported as they launch into being OM practitioners. Marnie now works as an independent OM in Melbourne, working in schools and community with a predominantly young client base. After launching Confident Steps in July of 2022, which is her company, by the way, you guys. Marnie has upskilled to be able to re-register as an orthoptist to be able to provide a holistic service to her clients. Now, Lil, if you were here a few years ago, Lil presented at the symposium, and she does fantastic work in the world of spatial awareness and orientation and mobility. In that, she does a lot of research that I personally do not have the patience to even try to attempt to do, nor do I have access to people. But her brain just works in such a really cool and fun way. I can't wait for you to meet her if you don't know her already. Lil has an ongoing fascination with things that immobilize us, including spatial dysfunction. Lil has worked with diverse O&M clients since 1993, taught trainee O&M specialists since 2007, and developed functional vision and O&M outcome measures in the context of bionic vision research. She occasionally sees an O&M client, but mainly works in an international co-design team at Ira Research, developing vision-related assistive technology. This is quite a challenge for a tech wary o O&M specialist. She has commercialized the Stewart Tactile Maps Test so that o specialists can use this great assessment resource to assess a client's mental mapping capacity. She lives in Melbourne, Australia, but enjoys talking with people worldwide in her Roaming M I N G with a Lil podcast. And we're going to get straight into this episode, but the links to all of those things that we talked about will be available on the show notes and at the end of the podcast as well.
1: All right. Well, hi, hi. I'm so glad that you guys are here, Lil and Marnie. I love the work that you are doing. It's so needed in the world. And I'm just excited to have you both on our podcast today.
2: Thanks Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Cassie.
1: Yeah. So Lil, I know you've been on the podcast before, but Marnie, you are new to our community. So can we start with you, Marnie, and have you tell our community a little bit about yourself?
3: I'm an orientation and mobility specialist. I've worked in the field since 1998 or seven, something like that, <laughs> a long time with a substantial break while I raised my children. I came to O and M via orthoptics. I studied orthoptics at La Trobe University. Was really interested in the low vision aspect of orthoptics, which is not the kind of the common part of orthoptics in Australia. And it was quite hard to break into at that time. So then I learned about O&M and I was like, that's the job for me. I get to be out and about in the weather. Usually that's a good thing, but not always. And so then I have went on and studied O&M and worked in that industry, worked as an O&M for a long time at various agencies. And then five months ago, decided to start up on my own, went back and re-registered as an orthoptist, so that I've added that back into what I offer to my clients. So.
1: Wow. So you have experienced both, in both areas the scientific, medical, as well as the educational model. How do you feel like that has really created your perspective on how you see things that might be different from other OM specialists?
3: It gives me a really good to start with, it gives me a really good understanding of the vision system and allowed me to cruise through that aspect of the OM study because I, I knew all the anatomy and the what the functional implications could be. I guess it helps also for me to bridge the gap between for my clients between that medical here's your eye diagnosis and and what that means functionally, because I can read those eye reports, I know what they mean. I can put it in layman's terms for the clients so that then they can understand what it means in a clinical setting, but then talk to them about how it means in a functional setting, because they often don't marry up. You know, what you see in a clinical setting is under ideal lighting conditions and with high contrast, and that's not the real world. So I think having that ground really allows me to explore that with Clients and help them to understand and have the right questions to ask when they go back. So, I want you to do this. I want you to, I don't know what you mean when you say that to their doctor and be comfortable to say that. So, I think that's the main thing that it gives me. To be honest, when I studied orthoptics and finished, I was like, Ugh. most of what orthoptists do bores the life out of me. And I couldn't imagine doing it. It was only the low vision component. We get to actually see a benefit that really interested me. So,
1: so. I just love that. And I was actually going to ask you that question, but you touched on it because you have experience in both. You can send your clients to their doctor with a list of like actual questions of like, how does this work in the real world? We see that all the time where you will get this acuity and, and the learner doesn't know what that means. And oftentimes like the parents don't know what that means. And they don't know what questions to ask. And I've had even like my own child has a very low hearing loss and putting him in a clinical setting, they were like, oh no, he's fine. And I was like, you know, so I did, just having a tiny bit of knowledge, I was able to go visit him in his cafeteria and do like a tiny bit of testing and be like, oh, we're gonna need to, we're gonna need to go back to the doctor and actually ask some questions. So I bet just you having so much knowledge and information Really helps to support your clients in that way as well. So that's really
2: cool. Yeah. Yes. The other thing I find, Cassie, is it's fantastic when you're working in a team as an ONM specialist to have an orthoptist or two on hand, and if they're dual qualified as an orthoptist and an orientation and mobility specialist, you just get the best of both worlds because they're already, you know. Thought through the kinds of questions that we're wanting to ask, and we're able to draw on the specific information about low vision aids or what's likely to happen to that client's vision in the next year or two years. Am I right in thinking, Marnie, that most orthoptists would find employment with an ophthalmologist supporting that clinical testing, and just a handful go out and do community work in functional practice?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I would say it's probably 95% that work with ophthalmologists. When I finished, unless you'd done further study, your honours or PhD in low vision orthoptics, you just weren't going to get a job. Whereas now there's a few more opportunities. There's more knowledge of how an orthoptist can support someone with low vision to make most use of their functional vision through magnification and lighting. But at the time when I did it, it was just, there were two jobs in, in our state of Victoria and they were both firmly stuck where they were and there was no way they were getting out. So, but now there is a little bit more opportunity. There are a couple of orthoptists, including myself working independently, providing that magnification assessment and being able to make recommendations for how to support someone with their reading goals or as an O&M, it's also for monoculars, for reading bus signs or street signs that I find that magnification knowledge really helpful.
1: Great. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick side note. Lil, I do want to introduce you as well. However, we've said the word opthop. Oh my gosh. I keep saying it wrong. Opthoptist. I don't know why I cannot say this. Orthoptist. Yep. Yes, I say the R. Okay. We've said that word a few times. And when we first came on before we started recording, you had mentioned it. And I was like, what is this? What happened to the rest of the word? So, can you kind of describe what you do, and then I will put it into you know American terms. What like what would your job description look like for as that?
3: an orthoptist? Yes, yeah, ma'am. What? So, for my particular part of orthoptics, which is not true of all orthoptics in Australia, but for me as a low vision orthoptist, I help people to understand what vision they have remaining. Often it's a conversation about what that prognosis might be as well, because they may have heard something in the doctor's office and not really be able to understand it. So, helping them understand what that eye condition is, what it means now, and what it might mean in the future. And then also looking at what their goals are, particularly around reading or near vision tasks. So, it might be puzzles or crosswords. It doesn't have to be a reading goal, but it might also be reading, you know, university. Research material or reading their child a book at night, whatever their particular reading goal might be, and looking at the different magnification tools, handheld, CCTVs. You know, there's lots of different options out there from a number of different providers to find the best fit. Also, looking at task lighting, which can make a huge difference. So, adding in the right lighting conditions or changing the position of the desk or wherever it is that you're reading your child a story before bed can make a big difference as to how much you can actually read that text. So making recommendations around the magnification and then yeah, writing to funding bodies if that's part of it, which is usually the case, to have that supplied. And
1: so do you also do the evaluations as well, I
3: take it? Of the vision? Yes. So, well, I'll usually do a more functional look at their vision because I'm looking at their ability to read in the position they want to read. So they have their favourite chair in the lounge room. How do they read there? As opposed to, as we've you know talked about, the clinical setting is very different. They have the ideal condition with the maximum contrast and that's not the real world. Books aren't crisp white pages with thick black writing. That's not the real world. So assessing their vision in a functional setting. So show me I go to people's homes, so show me what you would like to do and then make little suggestions. They still want to sit in their favourite chair, but maybe if we turn it around, we'll get rid of the glare and we can add a task light and it might be easier to achieve the goal they're wanting to achieve.
1: Thank you. Lil, yeah, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself to Lil. Well, I'm Lil
2: and I've been working in the o m field since Well, qualified at the end of 1992. So that's a long time ago now, 30 years. I've enjoyed during that time working a lot with children with multiple disabilities. And this is a situation where I found it so valuable being able to request a co assessment with an orthoptist. So the person who taught or was initiating the orthoptics program. At La Trobe, that Marnie did, she was an expert in eccentric viewing and taught us all about eccentric viewing, you know, particularly working with adults and how to increase people's, you know, focus on literacy-based tasks in the clinic, and then encouraging us to transfer those skills to looking for cars along the road and that kind of thing. But when working with kids in special skills schools who have um Multiple disabilities. On one occasion, I called an orthoptist in to assess a boy with charge syndrome, and she arrived with a big suitcase full of toys. And I was just fascinated. I sat back and watched the play. And she was using this big suitcase to see which toys the child was drawn to, and which ones he piffed, which ones he sat with for longer. She did lovely things like offer him slices of kiwi fruit on a green plate. And sure enough, he looked, he looked away, he reached, and these are signs, of course, of CVI. And so I learned a lot about how to do functional assessment of low vision in that nonverbal context just by working together with someone. Another girl I was working with was in a classroom with five kids, all of whom were nonverbal and had multiple disabilities. And this girl loved to lie on the hammock in the classroom, upside down, hanging over the edge and just swing. It wasn't until the orthoptist came in and told me she actually couldn't raise her eyelids. And so being upside down gave her a much bigger field of view of what was happening in the classroom than when she was sitting upright in her wheelchair with her eyelids sort of hanging low, only being able to see her knees in the wheelchair or having to have us present something kind of right under her nose. And this is where the coming together of that anatomy, physiology and a deep knowledge of the vision conditions, together with our functional observations in more dynamic places, just such a benefit having that specialisation. And I don't know, Cassie, is that what you know as low vision rehabilitation with that certification with ACVREP?
1: I'm not 100% sure. I think the way that you guys do things are is just a little bit different as far as at this moment in time for the podcast I can't figure out, you know, Marnie, if you go in like how your your services are structured, but I'd love to continue that conversation maybe at another time. But for today, um because I am very curious. You guys talked about teamwork, and one thing that's that was really cool and really very evident was the teamwork in the presentation that you guys are going to be doing at the symposium. And of course, with Lil involved, it's all about spatial awareness because you are the go-to every time somebody asks me anything about spatial awareness. I'm like, have you met Lil? Here's her website. Go check that stuff out because she has much more prolific thoughts than I would have ever had without knowing her, which is so cool because I get to know you and we all do. Everybody at the symposium gets to know you and gets to learn from you guys and you're all the way across the world and we don't have to go all the way across the world. Would you like to share a little bit about how you guys came up with the topic that you guys are going to be presenting at the symposium? I know there are two you know, people in your study and things had to have evolved. How did that happen?
2: I had the privilege of, presenting a keynote to the SWOMA conference last year with Dr Ian Stewart, who's the neuropsychologist I've been working on and thinking about spatial dysfunction with for about 30 years. Well, Ian's getting on a bit now, and he says, Lil, we've got to get on and finish this work. I said, you're feeling your mortality, are you, Ian? He said, definitely. So, we continue to assess people together, and we've had this opportunity to go back and assess someone 35 years after Ian's initial spatial assessment in a 15 year old's school context. And this has been fabulous because what we've realised is there's been absolutely no spatial learning in 35 years. This is a man who's disorientation is just as entrenched now at the age of 50 as it was back then when he was 15. And Ian made all kinds of dire prognoses about what this man's life would become, but he's actually, his mum has supported him to find his thing, which is playing the violin and singing. And I just went to see him performing with his male Welsh choir A few weeks ago and it's just a privilege to have that and yet at the same time he gets lost everywhere he goes he needs to be an accompanied traveler so when Marnie and I had the opportunity to offer different aspects of an O&M program to a 15 year old and we're both looking at it from our different O&M perspectives I'm thinking about spatial function and Marnie's done lots of work in the school context and again why does this guy keep getting lost? So I asked Ian to come and assess him for the first time and to my astonishment his tabletop tasks involving block construction and the Stuart tactile maps were brilliant. So there's nothing wrong with the parts of his brain that interpret spatial information and memorise it The problem starts when he leaves the front gate. So what's going on? Over to you, Marnie. So I've worked with this young man for quite a few years,
3: probably since he was about nine years old, so six years, and I would have said he has quite poor spatial awareness. I'd done the Stuart Tactile Lines and got a moderate sort of response that he was not as bad as I expected As he appeared functionally, he performed quite well on the Stuart tactile maps, but not fabulously, as Lil saw in the more recent assessment. But in a functional capacity, he gets lost all the time. And I questioned whether he actually had the ability to make a mental map and then be able to problem solve and put together his environment. I guess if we go the next step, what's happened is he's gone to a new school this year. So, obviously, our school year starts in January. So, he's been there for a whole year now. He has, it's a much more welcoming environment for him. There's a lot of diversity in the school in terms of learning needs, and it's a very positive environment for him. It's also quite a structured school in terms of the layout of the buildings. There's one main corridor, and there's ABCD wings that run off that main corridor. So, and what I've found over the year is he, can mental map and he can mental map very well when he's in the right mindset so if he's stressed he can't find his way out of his classroom but when he's calm and relaxed he can engage that mental map and what I've found is the more that he has success in O&M which is really this year is the first time he's had success in o and I would say over his life he now has some more confidence which then it's snowballing and he now he knows he can do things so he's less stressed entering O&M because he used to know I was coming and he would avoid going to school on the days that he knew I was coming so then we had a period of time where we didn't tell him I was coming the school knew I was coming his parents knew I was coming but we didn't actually tell him until he'd arrived at school so he couldn't refuse to go because O and M was so stressful for him, because he really found it so so challenging. And um, what this year has shown is that in the right environment, when he's calm and the environment's a little more structured, he actually is able to demonstrate what he can demonstrate on a tabletop task that he has good mapping skills. He can now put into play. Not all the time. If a child says has a go at him or something at recess, and then I show up next during his next class, we have to really work to get him calm before we start because otherwise he'll walk out and he'll turn the wrong direction, his frustration goes up and then he feels like he can't achieve anything. So it's really about having that, helping him to understand and see for himself, if I can self-regulate and be nice and calm and before I set off, I'm going to have success. So rather than storming off, which can be his go-to when he's frustrated about something, It's a teenage boy after all, that's probably pretty normal, that he calms himself so he doesn't end up exacerbating his getting lost. So,
1: Wow. Okay. First of all, thank you so much for sharing all of that information. Uh, A few years ago when Lil presented at the symposium, one of the big things that was my big aha moment from that presentation on spatial awareness that I had never really thought about, you guys are kind of bringing it up again, is we have this idea that spatial awareness is fixable in everybody. And if we don't see improvement, it's our fault as the o specialist. And then we internalize that and we get stressed. And I call it the cycle of burnout. When we start to internalize the lack of results that we expected to see, because who sets the goals? It's us. Like we're setting the goals. We're the ones you know, working towards it as our profession. Of course, our clients and learners are working towards it as their life. But when it doesn't happen, we can internalize that. And it was Lil who first brought up this idea of like, maybe it's them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that whole like dating analogy, like it's not you, it's me, like maybe it's not me, maybe, maybe it is them. And that spatial awareness isn't something that I should expect from everybody. But what I'm also hearing is, you know, there's a difference between Static spatial awareness, sitting, being able to do something on the maps, and then dynamic as in moving around the environment. But what you're bringing up, Marnie, is something that I've never considered before, which is the idea of trauma and stress on that system. So, have you guys found that trauma and stress have like an effect in the brain? Can you briefly, because I don't want to step over into what you guys are actually going to teach us in the symposium, can you briefly like Share the correlation there that you guys have found. So one of my
2: key learnings from working at Guide Dogs Victoria over 30 years has been around acquired brain injury. Because that organization has built particular strength in working with adult clients who have acquired brain injury from because they've got a rehab hospital across the road. And there's been a lot of collaboration. And Ian Stewart has worked between The two is a neuropsychologist. One of my key learnings in that space has been around fatigue and attention. So whereas I might work with a 60-year-old with age-related macular degeneration who gets visual fatigue from struggling to see and work out in the community and make best sense of available low vision, if I work with someone who's had a stroke or a head injury, And I'm going out and working with them in even the same environments, there will be an abrupt cut off to their attention. And we call it the neuro yawn. When you see the neuro yawn, no further communication will be entered into. You just wrap up the session, get out of there and start fresh another day. Because that client with acquired brain injury, like they just have had enough. It's not a slow developing fatigue just this abrupt off. it's very similar to what we see in someone who has a trauma response so all there needs to be is a sound trigger or a memory and bang that person suddenly becomes dysfunctional it's not that they gradually get tired and when they suddenly become dysfunctional it can happen as that fight flight or freeze and you know as a kid in school. I certainly heard about the flight and fight. I didn't know so much about the freeze. and the other one that I've learned about since is actually fawn. So in order to cope with this untenable situation, some people just need to latch onto someone who can make the decisions for them. And that's what we see a lot with this young man. Can I take your arm? I need sighted guide. So he has cultivated his own dependent behaviors and taught everyone else that that's what they can expect of him, as well as a seeing you know the fight, flight and freeze behaviors as well. And go oh, that's interesting. Where's the trauma? because I'm thinking Vietnam veterans) <laughs> And I certainly know guide dog mobility instructors who work with returned vets and use the dog as that softening safe space for people dealing with PTSD. So the really interesting thing in the conversation with this young man's mum is she says, well, there's capital T trauma and then there's small T trauma and small T trauma, she says, is death by a thousand cuts it's those when you're congenitally blind it's when there's explosive behavior around you that might have frightening consequences in one instance and make you feel really unsafe and you learn that any explosive noise or behavior that happens around you might have those consequences and you start to freeze or fight or run away or hang on to someone who feels safe. This has been astonishing to me because it's shifted my thinking about trauma-informed practice. I've heard a lot about trauma-informed practice in relation to people escaping domestic violence or experiencing big one-off traumas, but I've never really thought seriously about what it's like to be congenitally blind and repeatedly in situations that are socially frightening.
1: Yeah. That reminds me, I've been reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Have you read Mm -hmm. that? And Uh as I'm reading it, I had it as a library download, like on the app, right? A free library book that I just downloaded to my Kindle. And I actually had so many highlights that I didn't want to give up that I bought the book and I've been rereading it. And every time, like I bought it, you know, for myself, my own. Reading my own personal development. It's been one of the most life changing professional development books that I've ever read because there's so much trauma that goes into being a person with a visual impairment that I had not even thought of until I started reading this book. And I was like, oh, that's gotta be what my students go through. Oh, that's that happens a lot. And you're right, it's these teeny tiny microaggressions against our sense of safety and against our sense of self. That really, as you said, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. It really just erodes. And I also wonder if that's where learned helplessness comes from. There's just so many of those instances, and maybe it's a fawn response or a freeze response. And then people start to like take over and and compensate for that. So this conversation is just really interesting.
2: These perceptions were perhaps inspired or reinforced by this young man's psychologist? Marnie, do you want to say? Yeah,
3: absolutely. In the early days of working with him, I found it very frustrating. I hadn't worked with someone who exhibited consistent behavioural, he would get quite aggressive, he would throw his cane, he would undo his cane in my direction, knowing that it was coming towards my head. You know, there was a lot of, he would swear at me, you know, it was this real, he really hated O&M. He doesn't like me. We've come to a good place now many years later through understanding. His psychologist has been an invaluable support to me because there would be times that I would show up and we wouldn't actually do any o I'd try and negotiate with him, try and get him to do a little bit. <clears throat> but since learned that when he was in that state, there was no point. I was adding to his trauma by trying to make him do it. So His psychologist was incredible and provided me a lot of information about trauma-informed practice, said to me, I want you to think about him as someone who's had significant trauma in his life because I hadn't had that conversation with his family. I was not aware of any particular trauma in his life, but the information the psychologist gave me totally changed how I looked at the situation. It was a complete turnaround and I felt terrible for how I'd been engaging with him because I was engaging with him as a, belligerent teenager who wouldn't participate when in actual fact that was not at all what was going on and understanding that trauma has really shifted how I interact with him and how I engage with him and we have a much more positive relationship now because I understand where he's coming from and I can see when he's heightened and rather than adding to that by saying come on come on we just you know just do 10 minutes because that was what we'd aim for rather than doing that let's just sit down and have a chat let's and see if I can get him to calm and now he's at a point where he can self-identify and and I can say to him how do you think things are going to go if you set off while you're feeling like this oh I'll probably get lost yeah okay so why don't we take a breath let's sit still see if we can take some deep calming breaths and get you to a place where you feel like you can engage that part of your brain he's One of the most intelligent people I know. He's like off the charts intelligent. So being able to talk to him about that, it's like you have this part of your brain that works really, really well. But when you're like this, it's not working. So we need to get yourself calm so that you can engage that part of your brain. Because I can't do it for you. Only something you can do. So he's got some awareness around it now, and I think that's come from me understanding what was going on and being able to approach him in a way that works for him. So. Yeah, it's it's not something I knew a lot about trauma informed practice, and a psychologist was such a great help in understanding that.
1: Yeah, I can imagine, and you know, it kind of makes me think a few things. In that, a as teachers, we talked earlier about how we set the goals, but really, I've also been in situations with students with low vision who didn't want to use a cane, and our relationship was very rocky at first. You know. Or I've had a multiple, a student with multiple impairments who is younger, who would just like refuse to work. And I always felt like shame in a way on the days where the most that I got him to do was to sit in a wheelie chair, like an office wheelie chair. And I wheeled him around the building. And that was the most that was happening. And sometimes it could just be like, I wore the wrong kind of shoes. He wanted me to wear a different kind of shoe that day. However, the behavior manifests, it manifests, but it's probably along the same lines of, of course, you wanted your learner to reach for their goals. That's what we're there for. And there is like this level of pressure that we have to report on this and sitting down to say, Hey, today, let's just have a conversation and get to calm. And you having that information to help him self-identify is going to change his life.
2: Mm. Cassie there's a lovely threshold concept in medical education for doctors called active in action and we actually uphold that when we move from semi-solo to solo and there's always a tension when you've taught a client to do a route and then you shift to solo because I've shown they can do it semi-solo with you looking how should ethically how should I spend my time I'm accountable to my employer for how I spend my time. Is it actually good use of my time professionally to drop off a client at the beginning of a route and then not follow them for the next hour and a half but meet them at the other end? And I would argue that it's absolutely essential for some clients to not watch and to not engage Maybe I have busy work to do. Maybe I scoot around and, you know, get myself a nice beverage at the end point so that I'm there when I arrive. But it's a profound act of trust on my part that the client can do this and to be able to say genuinely I did not watch you and you did it is really, really important for that client. On the other hand, if I have my suspicions that dodgy things might happen, I will willingly do a sneaky solo I won't profess to have not watched. I will simply ask questions that are guided by my observations but that don't disclose that I've watched that invite the client to tell me whether something unusual happened and whether we need to do some supplementary work before I sign off on that program. So it brings us back to all kinds of questions around Active in action. And when it comes to making good use of our time as OM specialists, we can easily feel that we have to be terribly busy whenever we're with a client. But I've found that the opposite is really important. It's the time that you spend debriefing or getting ready to go out at the kitchen table. And when someone has a meltdown and they're chucking their cane around and all that kind of stuff, it's the time that you spend not talking, not answering those questions. Pick up my cane for me. Pick up my cane for me. No. And you wait. And you wait. And you wait. Because it can actually be a power tussle and a refusal on my part to get sucked into reinforcing learned helplessness and breaking that pattern. And it's tough love. And I have to make judgments along the way there about whether this is where tough love is needed, not by being assertive or aggressive or overbearing, just by shutting up and waiting. Or whether I actively need to be more kind in order to support someone who's in that trauma-informed place. And I'm not instinctively a particularly kind person. So it's, probably better that I just shut up and wait I suspect Marnie is a little bit kinder than me and so she finds active ways to engage while waiting for the client to be ready to get going again
1: yeah I think you just hit the nail on the head on what my next question was going to be you know like once we have this information what do we do with it so that just really tied everything our whole conversation into a nice little bow i'd love to end the majority of our conversation on that note and leave the floor up to you guys i'm so excited for your presentation coming up at the symposium i think it's going to help to skyrocket really our o teaching skills and our ability to decipher you know what's really going on behind underneath the surface but if you guys have any last words of wisdom as to how our community, whether they join us at the symposium or not, we love them either way, how they can take a step forward into becoming better O&M specialists, what would you share?
3: I think my big takeaway from working with this student, I was working with him when I was at Guide Dogs. I was given his case as a really experienced O&M and what I learned over that process was that I was lacking the experience that I needed. And I think probably most O&Ms are in that I didn't understand how trauma was directly impacting his spatial awareness and his ability to navigate his world. And the more he struggled to navigate, it was like it added to the trauma with every attempt he made and got it wrong. And he's a high-achieving student, so to not do well at something is devastating to him so he's not used to it and it i think it adds to his trauma so i think the takeaway is really that you know there's i guess we all know we're always learning but to go out and research trauma informed practice to to understand how trauma might present because it had never occurred to me that this child had trauma in their life and the impact that all of our students have of that having to do things differently, having people question them, having to justify what they're doing is adding to trauma.
1: That's great. Thank you.
2: I take a step back. I'm learning amazing things about trauma and see the immediate application in this context of apparent spatial dysfunction that we feel quietly confident we'll be able to unravel so that this young man will be a very capable traveller. As an adult, I step back though and think about this wearing my ACVREP subject matter expert committee hat. We've had the privilege in the last few years of revisiting the body of knowledge that gets taught in OM professional programs. This situation highlights for me how important it is to not just draw on the wisdom that we've had since the 1940s in setting up our profession with a fabulous focus on mobility skills, blind mobility skills, and great strategies that we can teach the people who are capable of mental mapping. It's time to come back to that body of knowledge and make sure that we include new learning about how spatial learning and spatial dysfunction works and how we need to be responding to clients in working out the cause of their spatial dysfunction and what to do about it. And I think that the new, the new learning more broadly across our Allied health medical professions and teaching about trauma-informed practice is profoundly important. and we need to be teaching that into our university onM programs because it's such a game changer. It really
1: is. I agree. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I absolutely cannot wait to share this information with everybody. Lil, we will put your Stuart maps and your website on the show notes. Marnie, is there anything you want us to put on the show notes here?
3: You can link to my website. Yeah, it's pretty basic because I don't think clients find me that way. But yeah, by all means, link to my website. Yeah, www.confidencesteps.com.au.
2: I love it. And Lil, are you
1: still at lildeverill.net? That's right.
2: Yep. For my Rome website, researching orientation and mobility.
3: Just add. I don't know if it fits into the podcast somewhere but I think the way I look at spatial function with my clients has been guided by working with Lil being in the same office and having that understanding that not everyone has good spatial function and it's not it doesn't rest with me as the O&M so I think that has been really pivotal in how I approach this young man and I had probably put him into that category of even though his Stuart Tactile Lines, when I'd assessed him, had something, I was still thinking, mm, you know, he might just be one of those people and, and I had confidence that that's okay to say some people can't mental map and they will be an, an accompanied traveller and we aim for the their most independent but I think having worked in the office with Lil allowed me to feel like, yeah, that's a thing. It's not my job as the O&M to fix it because I can't. It's how their brain works. So.
1: Yes. Uh, You just like, you put it all in one sentence. The relief that I felt when I realized it's not necessarily me. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's not. And what we need to do is dig deeper and look at the levels underneath the surface to really tease it out because there's so many different things to look at. And now we're also including you know, trauma as well, which is, this is the first conversation that I've had about trauma informed O&M, you know, or services of that nature. So I really appreciate you both doing this research, sharing your knowledge with us going above and beyond and really, you know, bridging the gap over the oceans to help orientation and mobility as a profession get so much better because we can be so regionalized and then that creates just like small, I want to say like small perspective or brains. And you guys really helped to elevate us up to that, you know, penthouse level where we could see just a lot further and know that we have access to other people all around the world. This is absolutely invaluable. Our community, our relationships with you guys absolutely could not do it without you. It is the joy of my life. And I'm so appreciative of you.
0: Thanks, Cassie. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. Talking with Lil and Marnie was such a joy. And I'm glad that we get to have this conversation with you as well. If you want to get in touch with Marnie, you can find her at confidentsteps.com.au. And if you want to get in touch with Lil, you can find her at Lil, L-I-L, Deverell, D-E-V-E-R r e l l dot net and there will be all the links to her publications and her podcast and of course they will be at the symposium presenting as well